the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello, and welcome to the second podcast in our latest series of M&A Perspective. I'm David Watkins, a corporate partner at Slaughter and May. And in this episode, our friends Laura Tirano and Krishna Virarogovin at Paul West in New York will be discussing the record levels of deal activity that they are seeing in the US at the moment, the drivers behind the growth, and they'll also be sharing their views on recent changes at the DOJ and the FTC and the impact that they foresee that these will have on M&A deals and competition law going forward. give you a sense of the general landscape when we talk about U.S. market activity, it's obviously completely crazy right now. So there's been a complete significant increase in U.S. M&A activity, and this is over 2021 and over 2020. So 2021 deal value, you know, we've already reached $2 trillion just getting into the third quarter. That outpaces what we were doing in 2020. It also outpaces pre-pandemic deal levels from 2019. And it's both in deal value and also deal number. So deal value, we're 143% year over year. Deal deal number, it's 19% over last year. And it's a lot of strategic buyer activity. So that's probably, you know, around 60% of what we're seeing in terms of deal value. But that 60% number really tells you that across the board, strategic, private equity, it's busy. We're busy at Paul Weiss. I know that, you know, everyone is busy right now. Um, You know, what industries are driving it? When we talk about the top industries, it's really, you know, tech. So computers, electronics, healthcare, also just leisure and recreation and telecom. Um, and, And we really see, I mean, it's so focused on those five categories that any one of those categories outweighs the rest of the categories combined. And, and, you know, one question that we get a lot is just what is driving this, right? What, what is causing all of this activity in the system? And I think there's a couple different pieces. So one is how do you reposition into a post-pandemic world? So if you're a company and you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, there's been changes in consumer behavior, right? Think about where we eat, where we, where we go, where we spend money, there's, there's a ton of changes and some of that's repositioning businesses. So that's what one of the industry drivers we're seeing um, and really just seeing sort of a balance of a portfolio. I think the second big piece, and this is an economic piece, is just lower borrowing costs. You know, I, I think of it in, in really simple terms of there's a ton of money in the system. And what do you do when there's a ton of money in the system? You go shopping. And that's what we're seeing our clients do is, is really being excited to do deals because they have a lot of cash um, and a lot of cash on their balance sheet. And then another piece that I know we've heard and we've said year after year after year, there's just a ton of dry powder at private equity funds, right? They're out there searching for deals and also harvesting investments because you look to the left and you look to the right and you think, this is a great time to be a seller. What are places, where are places where I can harvest investments and go into my new funds? Um, you know, the, the other piece is SPAC activity. So, you know, it, it has died down and we can talk a little bit about why, but when you're talking about the beginning of this year, just a tremendous amount of volume and SPAC IPOs and SPAC deals, these SPAC transactions. Um, and you know, this isn't this this next piece I'll say isn't really a numbers game, but 
part of it, I think, is, you know, when you look back at the last 18 months, CEOs, executives, they were at home, right? People whose travel schedule used to put them on the road every single day, multiple hours of the day. They were at home, they were thinking, they were dreaming big dreams. And I think a lot of the calls we're getting are executives thinking, you know, this is really exciting and I've thought about something and, and can this happen and can we do it? Um, and then the last piece that I think is really driving the volume we're seeing is just the really robust equity markets. And that's two different things. I think one is, you know, when you're on the target side thinking this is a great time to sell, right? And even if it's a not robust premium deal, it's still a premium in terms of this is an all-time high, right, for our stock, and this is a good exit point. And then I think on the buy side thinking, you know, my stock is a great currency to be using, and that is, I want to go out there and, and do something transformational because I have really powerful currency, my stock in my pocket. Um, so, you know, what kind of makes the music stop looking ahead, you know, in, in, I'll turn it to Krishna to talk about more just like geopolitical and antitrust concerns that we're seeing and, and that we're weighing with our clients. Um, but, you know, just to flag a couple pieces. So, you know, sustained inflation fears, I think people thinking, you know, there is a lot of money in the system. What does that mean? But at the same time, we're, you know, we're not expecting, I think the Fed isn't expected to raise rates until 2023, but I think that's in the back of everyone's heads. I think, you know, every day whenever you think of okay the the markets equity markets are just on fire you know how does that when does that music stop when does how does it impacted by you know the congressional stalemate over the debt ceiling and budgets and and just politics generally and whenever you think about uncertainty it's always something that can dampen uh deal making and you know i think on the SPAC side the scrutiny is just, you know, we have a Democratic president, we have, you know, Democrats that are looking for more regulation. You see really the highlight of what does this all mean? How does it impact things? What extra regulation should there be? And I think that's what you saw really put a damper on SPACs. Um, and I think that volume, I mean, just looking at numbers compared to Q, so you had volumes down in Q2, more than 51% compared to Q1. I mean, just really a completely different situation. Um, so I'll, I'll pause here and turn it over to Krishna because I really think that it's interesting to think about what are the geopolitical factors that are causing this and how is this all impacting things? Thanks, Laura. Um, I think we are spending a really significant amount of time talking with our clients about um, the impact of the Biden administration uh, on M&A generally and I think the takeaway right now is it's very unclear. Um, while companies are certainly expecting greater regulation and higher taxes under the administration, um, there was also the corollary view that you were going to have greater political stability and predictability, um, which both are generally conducive to deal making. Um, on the positive side for M&A, um, the view is, and we're seeing a little bit of this, a more stable U.S. foreign policy may support more cross-border activity. Um, although cross-border activity is somewhat mixed compared to 2020 and 2019. Um, as compared to 2020, uh, the deal value is up significantly. It's close to 125%. Um, and year-to-date, the total number of cross-border deals is only up 4.5%. Um, as compared to 2019, the cross-border total deal value is up 50%. But again, the total number of deals is down by 16. So it's, it's mixed on that. 
Um, there's also, and we're seeing this certainly domestically, the administration's focus on climate change and the accompanying intense investor focus on these same topics could also drive corporations to reposition their businesses vis-a-vis -vis new technologies. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities there that our clients are looking at and are feeling optimistic about. And then lastly, uh, at least in the short term, corporate tax increases may accelerate some M&A deals. Um, the headline corporate tax rate, which uh, was cut to 21% by the prior administration, is going to increase. Uh, Biden has proposed 28%, but the House Democrats have proposed 26.5%. And there's a negotiation happening here between the progressives and the more conservative side of the Democrats. Um, so it'll likely end up around there. Um, there's a sense that um, and any increase will cause deals to accelerate to try and close ahead of effectiveness. Uh, and it may slow others depending on the impact on the increase in balance sheets. This is particularly true, I think, for sponsor deals where they're especially sensitive to taxes. And so there's been a lot of activity this year for sponsors trying to sell businesses to get ahead of that tax change. Um, on the uh, headwind side, um, you know, the Biden administration uh, is widely expected to be the high tide of antitrust enforcement. Um, the progressive wing of our Democratic Party has been agitating for greater enforcement for some time. Um, the Republican Party also has uh, the same desires, at least on the very right wing, with respect to technology platforms. Um, in July, the White House issued an executive order on promoting competition in American economy, um, and that called for increased scrutiny on mergers. Um, the wide rating order, and it was very wide ranging, uh, really was an invitation for federal agencies to implement and revise policies related to mergers, intellectual property, labor, and employment. Um, it was a call to the federal agencies to engage on competition-focused rulemaking across industries, including agriculture, financial services, healthcare, telecom, and tech platforms, among others. Importantly, this executive order does not change the substantive U.S. merger law, and while the U.S. Um, and while the order contributes to the pro-enforcement political environment, the consequences of the order is really going to depend on what the agencies actually do with this invitation. Um, I think important to keep in mind here as well, and this is related to the substantive point, the courts are unlikely to change their standards on mergers in response to the, uh, to the new policy uh, by the executive branch. Um, the environment we are seeing is resulting in more uncertainty and certainly more second requests broader second requests, longer investigations, and more lawsuits filed by enforcers to attempt to block mergers. Um, I think the punchline here is antitrust clearance in the US is gonna take longer and will be more costly under this administration. Um, from a deal perspective, when you're thinking about contracts, the antitrust merger related pr provisions are um, important as they've never been before. Um, buyers are likely um, to seek to force um, or be forced to take more risk in the form of efforts provisions, including hell or high water provisions, take or pay provisions. Um, you're gonna see higher reverse break fees and express obligations to litigate uh, in, in merger uh, provisions in, in merger agreements and other purchase agreements. Similarly, the termination date or the outside date for deals, um, the associated rights that go along with those are gonna also take increased uh, precedent. Um, now, the enforcer's ability to succeed in court on aggressive theories is in doubt. Um, for a large number of deals, that means that it's very important for parties to preserve the credible threat of litigation via merger terms and negotiations with the agencies. Um, 
it may make sense in many deals to avoid timing agent timing agreements with agencies. Uh, timing agreements are commonly provide the agency more time beyond what's permitted under the HSR statute here, um, uh, and in, in terms of getting sort of shorter review periods or more narrow reviews. Um, I think people are rethinking whether it makes sense to enter into those agreements with the government. Um, after years of winning most merger suits, the DOJ and the FTC have recently lost a number of significant merger trials. If you think back to AT&T Time Order, among others. Um, and uh, that's actually an illustration, again, that courts are skeptical here of novel and aggressive antitrust theories. Um, recently, uh, Facebook won dismissal of an FTC non-merger antitrust complaint, um, which was, uh, again, presented on a novel basis. Um, so taking a look, the U.S. has two agencies, so it's, I think it's helpful to look at the two because I think they're somewhat of a divergence. Uh, at the Department of Justice, um, the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust has not yet been appointed. Um, Jonathan Cantor, who's a former partner of ours at Paul Weiss, um, has his confirmation hearing today on October 6th. Um, he has bipartisan support. He's going to be confirmed. He probably will not be installed before the beginning of next year. The expectation is that he will be an aggressive enforcer, but perhaps in a more measured fashion, the FTC leadership, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, you know, he's a leader of, uh, of antitrust progressives. He has a view on technology platforms, and, um, and so he will be aggressive. But he's also been a practicing lawyer. He's not an academic, and he's likely to be much more practical, practical and aware of the constraints on moving too far and too fast in the pursuit of novel theories. Um, in the meantime, the DOJ is currently led by career staff on an acting basis. Um, and it's true, they are marginally more aggressive now, um, but their approach has been consistent with past enforcement precedents. Um, so therefore, if you have something before the DOJ, it's much more predictable in terms of the results. Um, turning over to the FTC, the FTC is there significantly more uncertainty. The new chair is Lena Khan. Uh, and the FTC, under her leadership, is really positioning itself as an aggressive enforcer and has made a number of changes to FTC policies. Um, it may be helpful uh, just to have a little bit of background on Lena Khan. Um, Lena is a progressive pro-enforcement um, regulator. Uh, she has been critical of Obama-era enforcement, including um, uh, and also Republican administrations. Um, she's best known for her critique of antitrust approach to uh, technology platforms. Um, she's 32 years old. Um, she doesn't have any experience in private practice or business or counseling or, or frontline merger uh, enforcement. Um, over the last couple months, uh, Khan has had a 3-2 majority at her disposal, meaning there are, there are three Democrats and two Republicans as commissioners. Um, and um, when she's had that majority, the process has been unpredictable. Um, she and her chosen Bureau of Competition Director, Holly Vadova, um, have pushed the staff to look at non-standard and arguably naive issues with respect to high-profile deals um, in target areas, especially uh, on the pharmaceutical and technology side. Um, also, uh, under this leadership, um, recent actions indicate it's going to be a much, much more hospitable place uh, for merging parties. Um, the FTC withdrew 2020 vertical merger guidelines um, and announced they would review the horizontal merger guidelines. Um, the vertical guidelines were issued jointly with the DOJ to provide more transparency about the agency's approach to vertical merger analysis. However, they were viewed by the current FTC leadership as too favorable. 
um, and no new guidelines are issued in the meantime. And that, that has introduced uncertainty and a certain opacity into how the FTC is gonna evaluate um, vertical issues. Um, it's likely the FTC will be more willing to challenge vertical integrations using expanded theories of harm. Um, although again, there's limited litigation precedent help for the agencies and vertical mergers. We're also seeing the issuance of what we are calling closing at your own peril letters uh, at the end of waiting periods, um, even where no second requests have been issued. Um, these letters are a new policy and what they do is they inform the parties at the end of this period that the FTC is still in investigating the merger and notwithstanding the end of the waiting period. Um, and if the parties close, they do so at their own peril. Um, so far, the practical impact of these letters has been very limited. Uh, the FTC has always had statutory power to continue investigation past the HSR period uh, and or investigate and sue on these deals. Um, so it's important for merging parties and we're seeing this in the documents and negotiations. Think about how closing conditions are drafted um, to address these things. Um, uh, a bigger macro thing, and this is gonna be more significant for private equity buyers, is they've changed their policy on prior notification and approval rights for the FTC on future mergers as part of merger settlements. Um, historically, the FTC had previously required approval or notification rights in certain deals in connection with granting approval when there was a settlement. Um, uh, but in the Clinton era, uh, those, those provisions really had fallen out of disfavor. The FTC has now reversed that policy initiative and are now requiring them in merger settlements. And not only are they gonna require um, notification, um, but they're also gonna require approval, which is very significant. Um, this is gonna be an important sticking point for private equity firms and others who are repeat players in, um, in M&A. Um, and I think buyers are beginning to try to enforce carve out provisions from these in merger agreements in terms of their obligations to agree to um, what the regulars are asking for. Um, according to reports and our interactions with the staff, uh, it's clear the staff feel overworked. Um, there have been a number of departures from the agency. Um, and I think they also feel a little bit um, embarrassed at times by the lines of inquiry they're being forced to pursue by um, the, the commissioners. Uh, many, few, many feel their views and experience are not being taken into account properly. Um, and we're certainly seeing um, that certain, certain parts of the FTC, which historically reviewed deals and in industries are actually being overlooked for other ones who don't have the same level of experience. Um, so what this means is that deals at the FTC that would have sailed through in prior administrations are getting questioned and sometimes even getting second requests. Um, and so, you know, just again, the, the theme here is uncertainty. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times what we are telling our clients now is to take a sort of damn the torpedoes full speed ahead approach um, before the FTC, uh, in particular for deals that raise uh, non-standard issues that can't easily be fixed. In other words, at the FTC now may often be advisable for parties to prepare to get through a second request process as promptly as possible and then force the FTC, force the FTC to decide whether to sue you. Um, the FTC cannot sue everybody. And when they sue on novel theories, they're more likely to lose, again, like the, like the AT&T Time Warner deal. Another important, very, very near-term um, factor is uh, where the commissioners stand in terms of Democrats and Republicans. Um, the FTC confirmed Commissioner Chopra 
um, to lead another agency and he'll be departing soon. So until, until his replacement has been confirmed, which will probably be at least six months, the strategy I outlined in terms of going full speed ahead um, is even more advisable. Uh, the commission is going to be split to two and, and, the, and, and Lena Khan is going to be very hard pressed to get a majority, which is three votes. She needs to vote out a complaint. Um, the two Republicans who are commissioners have been clear. They do not support her non-standard concerns. On the other hand, the 2-2 split to complicate negotiating fixes for deals that raise standard horizontal issues, where both the Republicans and Democrats are willing to vote out a complaint, but the Democrats balk at a fix. Um, this is because in order for the FTC to accept the fix, a majority of commissioners must vote in favor of the fix. Um, so, you know, I think they, the, the storyline on antitrust is um, a lot of uncertainty, definitely going to be more aggressive enforcement, likely a more hospitable environment at the DOJ, uh, both in terms of issues they're going to pursue and the manner they do it. Um, whereas at the FTC, I think uh, you're likely to get much more aggressive enforcement, novel approaches to it. Um, and, you know, even um, from a timing perspective, uh, taking longer to get through and likely higher chances of a second request and more costly compliance issues to do so. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.